I'd like to say welcome to one episode 162 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, but I actually have to give you a warning about this one. Uh, um, we had a failure uh, in recording this and ended up recording it through the mic on a laptop in the uh, uh, studio, uh, uh, and the, uh, the recording quality is very poor. Um, so if you start listening and you say, well, this is just terrible, uh, I think you should uh, stop. It won't get better, uh, with one exception. Um, you might, if, if you're interested in Talon, the Talon Manual and Mike Schmidt's interview, that interview, because it came through the phone, um, is a little bit better quality. There are still some problems with Brian Egan's part of the conversation, um, but uh, if you uh, get frustrated by the news roundup uh, and are interested in uh, the law of war, um, you can skip to the interview and see if that is better. My apologies. Uh, uh, this was entirely our fault, and uh, it's a really a close call whether we should release this at all, but it was a great conversation, and I thought that there might be some people who were willing to persevere uh, through it uh, to uh, to pick up what they could. Uh, and if you're one of them, welcome to episode 162 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast. Welcome to episode 162 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. And I'm joined today, our guest uh, is Michael Schmidt, who's professor of law at three different universities, University of Exeter, the Naval War College and West Point, and uh, uh, the fellow who helped put, pull together Talon 2.0, the manual that uh, we'll be talking about uh, in our interview section. Uh, so, Michael, uh, welcome to uh, uh, the podcast. Thank you very much. Okay, and also uh, here for the news roundup, Michael Vadis, formerly with the FBI and the Justice Department, now a partner in our New York office. Uh, Michael, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Okay, and the irrepressible Stephanie Roy, the partner in our telecom internet and media practice, here to explain the latest in net neutrality and uh, appearing for the first time, but I hope not the last. Uh, uh, a brand new Steptoe partner. He doesn't even have a phone that works with our email system. Brian Egan, uh, former State Department legal advisor, National Security Council legal advisor, deputy legal advisor, and uh, Treasury, um, Intel, and uh, OFAC and sanctions uh, uh, policymaker. Brian, did I get everything right, Brian? That's great. It does sound great. Uh, it's very impressive. Uh, uh, just living up to that is a, a, a chore. So thanks for joining us. Uh, and uh, I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with the NSA and DHS. I'm holding the record for returning to step to the practice law more times than any other lawyer. Why don't we jump right in? Uh, the National Security Agency made news over the, uh, at the, I guess on Friday, sending out something that said uh, um, under Section 702, which is the one end in the U.S., uh, uh, targeting uh, uh, foreign uh, uh, terrorist uh, provision, uh, we've decided to stop looking for communications based on who is being talked about uh, and only look for uh, who messages are being sent to and from. Um, this turns out, uh, Michael, I don't know if you looked at this, but this turns out to be potentially a big deal. NSA says itself in the public announcement uh, this means we are giving up intel uh, that could be valuable um, because, essentially, we don't need the source uh, from Congress and from the FISA court. Uh, um, we're recognizing that uh, 702 is going to be reauthorized. We've had compliance problems. Uh, we'd rather just have less intelligence uh, than more compliance issues. I must have read a different report because what I read, NSA was saying they didn't think they were giving up much. Um, and, you know, look, you, you guys control the presidency, both the House of the Congress and the judiciary. You know, what's this elite opinion that, you, that your former agency is worried about satisfying? Well, they did I'm not say not that they were hoping to satisfy the elite opinion. That's me. I, uh, I, I know the Scalia House and also the Supreme Court. I'm not sure 
Fourth Amendment concerns. I, I, this has been approved by the courts. This was approved uh, by the PCLA, basically. Um, and so why are they going to take going soft? If, so if they're, they're giving up valuable intelligence they're just to avoid a little, a, a little uh, critique from Ron Wyden? I mean, it, it doesn't sound plausible. Yeah, no, I think, that, I think that's exactly it. This is the price we're paying for putting our national security on a, uh, a five-year clock and saying anybody who's irresponsible enough to stop it can. Uh, it's, uh, it's, but the Republicans control Congress. Are the Republicans the one that have a problem with this, oh, you, with this you're, program? You're going to have to pass this as, as legislation, which means you're going to need 60, which means you're going to have to satisfy the Democratic caucus. Uh, but I, 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 I'm not going to let the Republicans uh, or, off or the hook. Or eight members uh, thereof. Yeah, Justin Amash uh, is, is as crazy as Ron White. Uh, but they're looking for uh, an opportunity to create problems. I think the problem here probably was in part the, uh, the FISA court, which is uh, sort of holding up uh, or demanding answers to a whole bunch of questions about compliance problems that they've had. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, the compliance problems come from the fact that you inevitably pick up American to American communications. If one American says to another, uh, so what is the email address for that terrorist I'm trying to reach? Uh, and the other one says, here it is. Uh, that's going to get picked up under current rules, but it won't get picked up uh, in the future. And uh, I think that gives you a feel for why we're losing some intelligence. Uh, uh, yeah, NSA, you're right, downplays it, says, well, we're losing some, but we think it's worth it. But what does that mean, worth it? It's worth it because uh, the country, the Congress, the courts, the civil society have made it painful to gather this intelligence. So I don't think that's a good enough reason to say, yeah, we'll be a little less safer, but uh, we'll have less political happy. So does that mean Trump is weak on national security? I, I, I don't, I, again, I don't, I'm not sure where you're pointing the finger of blame. Who is the one that's gone soft here? I, oh, I think NSA has gone soft for sure. I, I'm not sure they told a lot of people before they did this. Uh, uh, that's an interesting question. Uh, uh, and I think uh, there is a lack of congressional support for gathering this intelligence on both sides of the aisle that makes the, uh, plus the, you know, hyper-judicialization of intelligence collection uh, uh, that makes it very, very difficult for NSA to gather intelligence. And this is a good example of that. Just as it was, well, you remember the, the wall. Now, whose fault was the wall? Everybody embraced the wall uh, until they discovered how badly it hurt our intelligence capabilities. Uh, but before that, it was simple prudence to just keep adding to the wall. I don't know. I remember spending a lot of years in the Department of Justice trying to uh, foster greater information sharing between law enforcement and intelligence. Yeah, consistent um, with so the wall, that, not, that made it impossible. No, actually not. There were, there were Actually, not at all. This was, this was over 20 years ago. Um, there were people like you who wrote articles criticizing those efforts to foster more information sharing. Uh, but there were there were years long efforts to to actually foster more information sharing. Yeah, and and they mostly failed uh, because of civil liberties concerns. But uh, we're back in that. It's it's welcome to September 10. We are here uh, again, uh, and and this is uh, this is NSA's. Uh, uh, Flair saying that's where we are. All right. Uh, net neutrality. Let's move to something less controversial. Uh, Stephanie uh, Ajitpai has announced, they sent out a, a, a draft NPRM that is circulating to try to get the FCC to put on the docket. Uh, and uh, yeah, we'll it. It. It's on the docket. But it will be on the May Which means that it will then be published after that, right? Uh, that, that's Migrated to the, the, the cyber executive alert into um, 
times uh, FDRF because it's called storing internet I should say, um, 30 seconds after the NPRM becomes final, you'll be part of a lawsuit to enjoin that, won't you? Oh, most assuredly, um, but that shall not um, be the, the only thing part of a continuing effort to, on behalf of uh, many of the clients, to um, seek and have uh, uh, important end uh, in related news, uh, we originally scheduled you to come on this panel to talk about pilot NPRM, but just this morning the DC Circuit denied the Dress.com and NCTA petition for rehearing by the panel and on bond. Which means that the decision upholding the classification of uh, the uh, ISPs as Title II uh, for net neutrality purposes is final, which, Correct. Uh, you know, it, well, it simply says. The last administration's policy is now upheld unless you want to change it and you're going to have to go through NPRM. That's, that's correct. And, and or if, if the petitioners choose to request her, which uh, seems very unlikely at this stage, especially considering there's no circuit split. There's a Oh, yeah. No, that's, 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 that's a waste of time. Um, so we have an NPRM out there that have basically... In my view, is essentially they took one of the petitioner's briefs to the circuit and put it in the parent form. So is there any, any so other than the say, does this do anything other than say, you know, that whole Title II thing, forget it? Uh, it, it makes a modest thing at saying perhaps we could talk about some basis for the right line rule. But I think the Verizon Court made it pretty clear that the no pay prioritization, um, no, um, no two-sided government can't prevent them from taking money from the other side of the market absent a uh, Title II classification would prevent any, any kind of substantive. Um, so this was, this was the, 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 the Obama administration's first attempt was to say, we can do this without going to treat these guys as utilities uh, and it more or less lost, right? Well, actually, the, uh, it was the George uh, Bush. Bush that the first attempt to uh, enforce open internet principles happened. Okay. And, and then that it was also that was based on the base of a policy statement. Right. And then they tried um, soft touch, kind of a third way under uh Democrats as we call the I think I remember and, President Obama kind of uh, twisting Tom Willard's head around on uh, this issue. Uh, Obama made a statement that was put into the record, yes. yes, just like many of the presidents before them in SEC proceedings. So we'll see. We're, uh, we'll see when it comes out in the Federal Register, you know, a comment cycle. You can expect voluminous comments. Once again, there were 4 million comments submitted in the last right. SEC proceeding on this topic. We can expect that and more. Okay. And, um, but right now, we're, we've launched a two-year, two-and-a-half-year process. I bet you would be a lot faster than that, actually. Oh, okay. um, the high chairman uh, is very interested in expediting this. I doubt very much we'll see a very extended uh, year plus like post-comment cycle right. ex parte uh, period. So, um, well, it take, takes a while to answer all those comments. So. You, you do, and that adds to one of the challenges of the SEC is that we just had a proceeding in the last back of funding that would um, help support the current All right. Um, okay. I, uh, this week in sex toy security. Uh, uh, we, that's a continuing feature, uh, uh, but uh, the FTC is apparently uh, being invited into the uh, uh, the process of reviewing the uh, uh, SIME uh, uh, vibrator security. They have it's a vibrator with a camera and a Wi-Fi connection, and the Wi-Fi connection is uh, 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 has a password that. No one knows how to change, and it is the uh, Chinese luckiest number, 888888. Uh, and with that number, and uh, uh, you can you can spy on your neighbor's vibrator uh, with camera. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm not going to make a penetration testing joke about what they should have done. Uh, uh, but Michael, uh, 
Do you think the FTC is going to take this? Uh, <laughs> FTC gets complaints all the time. Um, without knowing more about this and whether these reports are credible, it's hard to say. Yeah, so it's a perfectly credible organization, Access Now, uh, uh, Amy Stefanovich. Uh, uh, so it's it's pretty well written. Uh, it is making an argument that uh, I'm not sure hasn't been made before, which is that uh, it's a violation of uh, the FTC Act to market something without uh, uh, showing how to secure it uh, or to change the default password. Um, but I'm guessing the FTC just um, doesn't have the, the guts uh, to uh, to take this one. Uh, it, it, it's uh, uh, it's it's uh, going to be a subject of too many jokes. Um, all right, but uh, I would I, I for one would welcome them uh, uh, bringing it. Uh, uh, other stories, um, Michael the. Uh, uh, both Facebook and Google got taken to the cleaners for a hundred million dollars by a uh, cyber scammer. They got it back, though, right? Uh, according to the reports, they both claim to have gotten all or nearly all of the scammed money back. Uh, but again, this, this story, I think, is still in its early stages since we just got a complaint, and I don't think the complaint goes through, you know, whether the victims got it back. So we just know what they what they've said. Um, and until uh, this scammer, Ivaldis Rimasalskis, uh, is extradited and eventually faces trial or, or pleads guilty, I think we're, there's still going to be a lot of question marks about this case. Yeah, I can't help uh, saying that you know Silicon Valley has been spending three years wallowing in Snowden and saying, uh, you know, if the NSA can't protect its own data, how can we expect them to protect uh, crypto keys? Uh, uh, that we provide to them uh, for lawful access. Uh, um, now it looks as though the biggest names in Silicon Valley have gotten to join NSA in the Hall of Shame for inability to secure systems. Um, this is this is almost not even news. The New York Times reports that uh, uh, Trend Micro has said that uh, the uh, the same group. <coughs> In fact, the same nationality, the same uh, intelligence service that uh, hacked the Democratic National Committee is now trying to hack uh, uh, Emmanuel Macron's uh, campaign against uh, Marine Le Pen in, uh, uh, in France. Uh, um, since Russia Today or RT is all in for Marine, uh, uh, it's not a surprise that... Um, the unofficial uh, um, uh, hacking division of RT is going after uh, uh, her opponent and hoping to do the same thing that they did uh, uh, to Hillary Clinton. Uh, uh, I'm not sure there's much surprise here. Anybody surprised? Yeah. Okay. Uh, and this week in vigilante subject cybersecurity, I am really surprised uh, how much vigilanteism is going on without anybody complaining very much about it. Uh, at least when it's a it, it was the right sort of target. Flexi uh, Spy, which is basically uh, how to find out uh, you know, software you can download onto your spouse's phone to find out if he or she is cheating, uh, uh, has been totally pwned. Just just doxed to a fairly well right from the start of the company to the end uh, uh, with pictures, uh, uh, deeply embarrassing and potentially the subject of um, an indictment is my guess because. Uh, selling this equipment for that purpose is something that the U.S. government has prosecuted before. So FlexiSpy, uh, I think the uh, the hacker um, published this stuff under the heading FlexiDie, uh, and that may well be what happens. Uh, more interesting, uh, Michael, uh, is this Bricker bot, which is going around and finding all those Internet of Things uh, um, devices that uh, uh, have things like default passwords that can't be changed, uh, and um, either bricking them or locking up, uh, depends on the, on the particular software, there's two now, uh, BrickerBot is just bricking them, saying, you know, if, if you're dumb enough to run this this way on the Internet, uh, it's going to be used to DDoS me, so instead I'm just going to kill your machine and you've wasted your 30 bucks or 50 bucks, or in the case of the... Uh, uh, Internet-enabled vibrator, $250. Uh, 
Um, a, and uh, and then there's another bot that goes around and just closes all your ports for you to uh, uh, to protect you. Um, I've been surprised how little outcry there's been from the people who seem to think that hacking back is the end of the world uh, um, when uh, when this sort of thing happens. Uh, you know, I, I don't know how widespread these things are. I don't know how many victims there have been. I think that's usually the key in how much of an out. Yeah, up where there is. Yeah, I, uh, they're 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 picking up tens of thousands of, uh, of victims, I believe, uh, and uh, uh, you know, competing with the Mirai botnet to uh, either um, uh, recruit or fend off recruiting efforts. Uh, um, I don't think it's going to solve the problem, but uh, the guy who uh, sent out Brickerbot described it as. Internet chemotherapy. He said, this is strong medicine. I hate to kill off these things, but uh, in order to keep the Internet alive, we're just going to have to do it. Okay. Well, what I'd like to do now is turn to a discussion of the Talon 2.0 manual. Uh, um, and I'm hoping Brian Egan will stick around with this. Uh, uh, Brian was a big defender of... Uh, the application of uh, international law to cyber operations, uh, and generally a booster of the uh, uh, the Talon 2.0 effort. Uh, uh, but Mike, let me just start this by saying, can you, in you know, a couple of minutes, summarize what Talon 1.0 was and what Talon 2.0 is? Well. Talon 1.0 was a very, very modest effort that was just going to be a small group. There were 20 of us experts from mostly NATO countries that were going to look at the law of war uh, as applied to cyber operations, primarily because there was a lot of confusion about how rules like distinction applied in the battle space. Uh, it grew a little bit beyond that point, be, beyond that topic, because states were telling us that what they really wanted to know in addition to how LOAC applied, they wanted to know about use of force. When is a cyber wait, operation now, wait, 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 use wait, wait, force? Let me stop you there. LOAC, huh? the law of armed conflict. Right? Law of armed conflict. Yeah, yeah the, the law that applies on the battlefield. Yep. And so that was initially what we were going to do. We received a lot of input from states and, uh, and others that asked us to, to, to move the scope of the article a bit, uh, to make it a bit more broad. And so what we did is we included UN Charter Law, uh, Article 2.4, prohibiting the use of force and the law of self-defense, which is found in Article 51. So what we dealt with for three years in Talon 1, this group of 20 primarily NATO academics and practitioners, uh, what we dealt with were cyber operations at the very highest level of severity. Now, we released it uh, in 2013, uh, we finished in 2012, finished in, uh, and published in 2013, and it was, uh, it, it got a lot of attention. But what the community asked us was, yeah, well, you, you've told us what the law may be during warfare, but on a day-to-day -day basis, when I'm sitting as a legal advisor in state or defense or wherever, that's not the type of cyber incident I deal with. I deal with cyber incidents that uh, may violate sovereignty or the principle of non-intervention. And so why don't you guys keep going? So the NATO Center, uh, which is based in Tallinn, Estonia, hence the Tallinn Manual, the NATO Cyber Center commissioned us to basically keep going, to expand the this document on the law of war and the use of force to peacetime legal regimes ranging from state responsibility to space law. Okay. And that's tall and too old. So what you basically did is said, okay, well now we're going to talk about all the other ways in which cyber operations bump into international law without regard to uh, the existence of an actual armed conflict. Absolutely right. That's what legal advisors told us they wanted. <laughs> yes, because actually there haven't been a lot of uh, uh, uses of cyber in armed conflict. Uh, back I'm not sure I could name two. So there's been no, there's, there have been very few incidents that would implicate the UN Charter prohibitions on the use of force, maybe Stuxnet, uh, possibly. Um, but there has been a fair amount of cyber in the battle space, in, in engaging in cyber operations to, you know, to facilitate classic conventional military operations, engaging in cyber to collect uh, intelligence and so forth. So we've seen a fair amount of cyber in conflicts like Syria. I mean, I would cite the Syrian Electronic Army, for example, 
And of course, our own forces, the friendly forces, use cyber on a not infrequent basis. So let me let me let me ask, stop you there, on, and, and just say, I, I I am familiar with some of that stuff, and I would describe it as uh, maybe a five percent improvement in the effectiveness of uh, the U.S. military, maybe. This is not a major weapon system, uh, at least thus far, is it? It's not a major weapon system yet. You're exactly right. I will tell you, you know, I work in the DOD, although nothing I say uh, represents DOD policy. I will tell you, it, cyber is very much the flavor of the day at places like War College. We're very interested in understanding how we can leverage cyber, cyber capabilities in the battle space. In fact, we've just we, we've just uh, uh, established a center here at the Naval War College on exactly that. Uh, however, I would say you're right in terms of offensive operations. You're right, but in terms of uh, collecting intelligence in the battle space, of identifying where individuals are, for example, so that you can follow up with a kinetic uh, engagement of that individual, that target. I'd say we use it with some frequency. Again, you're right, Stuart. It's, it's not a huge. Uh, thing, but I believe most commanders are pretty pleased to go into the battle space with a um, with an information operator sitting in the mission planning zone. So if it's if it's mainly been good for intelligence, uh, I'm sure the intelligence agencies all thank you for suggesting that there were substantial um, international law constraints on what they did to gather intelligence. Right? <laughs> yeah, that's a very good question. It's a question I. I get asked with some uh, frequency. So uh, I'll tell you what the approach of the group was and the approach of many, many states, because during this process, we had the opportunity to meet with 50 states and international organizations like NATO and the OAS uh, to talk about the project. And although not every state took this position, the vast majority felt it was important to get their arms around the rules of the game. Uh, the value of our project wasn't so much telling states where the uh, what the rules were. It wasn't. It was hardly a juridical epiphany to tell states that the law of non-intervention applies in cyberspace, but rather to to dig deep and help states understand where the gray areas were or where the disagreements on the law uh, were. And so our response from states was extremely positive. We had literally thousands of comments from states on, on drafts of the manual. We worked closely with them. We, I, I have to emphasize the fact that a state worked with us doesn't mean we necessarily took their view, uh, but we did reflect all the views that states put forward in the manual. What's, what's important about the manual is I, I think it's often misunderstood. I've been involved in a fair number of manual projects, air and missile warfare, for example, uh, non-international conflict, in every previous manual project, the experts said, this is the law and this is how you interpret the law. What was different here was we were conservative in the sense that we, I did not want to replace Brian Egan. What I wanted to do was give his folks a tool that when they were faced with a cyber incident, it jump-started their analysis that we were issue spotting for them and giving them a sense of where a, a group of distinguished international scholars and practitioners thought the, the, the play was. So, uh, yes, you're right, Stuart. There are folks who say, you know, these academics, uh, they're meddling in our affairs, affairs of state. But most states and most legal advisors have been very supportive of, of the project. So, uh, Brian, did you have to run an interagency process on your comments on Talenduo? <laughs> so the U.S. did not submit official U.S. government comments, uh, although I know folks both from the Defense Department and the State Department were involved uh, in working with Mike and others. You know, I think one interesting thing and a problem that we struggle with within the U.S. government is we we don't know how to put our hands around the application of international law. We don't do a good job of having our foreign ministries and our militaries talk to our intelligence uh, officials to make sure we're all on the same page about how these things operate. And I think one big step forward for Talon, although I don't agree with everything that's in it, of course, is, it, as, as Mike said, it gives a, a playing space from which people and in the intelligence community can say, well, we just don't agree that that's right. Or uh, people from 
the core administrator can say, well, we think this rule should be X. Uh, it, it, it defines some kind of parameters for a discussion that are often uh, lacking. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I, I will say that there are places where the manual goes out of its way to say some people said this and a lot of other people disagreed uh, or the group was split uh, and it doesn't try to make that a rule. It, it just says uh, uh, here's where the debate is. Exactly. So why don't we jump into this? Uh, I mean, I, I, I went through it uh, over the weekend. Um, you can download this from uh, uh, a Kindle for about 40 bucks, if I remember right. Uh, and uh, um, I, I found several places where there was talk about cyber espionage uh, that suggested at least that uh, some kinds of cyber espionage using cyber tools were a violation of international law, uh, which um, you know runs counter to the general view of the intelligence community that they unlike DOD, don't have to worry about this stuff. Um, and uh, um, I was surprised at the statement that, you know, this is one, I, if I remember right, in Rule 4, where uh, you say in the manual, well, this is just, you know, this is just a violation. Uh, it's not a, it's a, not a debatable thing. It's uh, it's what everybody thought was, uh, was the law. Yeah, espionage, I will tell you frankly, we, we struggled with espionage quite a bit. The group came to the consensus opinion, and you need to remember that we're talking about folks like myself that are from the United States, but we had a Chinese scholar, we had a scholar from uh, Belarus, uh, Japan, from all over the world we had folks. Mm -hmm. uh, there was consensus among the group that espionage is not a violation of international law. But we were quick to emphasize that it was espionage per se was not a violation of international law. Now, in the example that you were talking about, I went back and looked at that example. That was an example of an individual who conducted espionage on the territory of the state that was the target. Well, sort of so hard to not, not the, to if you're breaking into the, uh, your adversary's computers. You're, you're bound to be... No, we were talking territory. about... Right. We were talking in that paragraph about physically being the the operator physically being on the territory of another state has distinct from remote operations, remote collection operations. But isn't that, so in that, that case that, 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 that's a good clarification, but uh, isn't it true that the jurisdiction statements say uh, if it's on your territory, it's your uh, sovereignty that is at stake, and so if somebody breaks into a computer on your territory, it's an intrusion on your sovereignty. Isn't that the uh, uh, core principle here? And, and that, that's exactly right, and that was our point. Our point was when you're looking at an example of cyber espionage, the fact that it is for purposes of espionage is not relevant to the international law analysis. However, how you conduct it and where you conduct that espionage is relevant under international law. And so the example that we used, and I think it's a good one, is if I'm conducting remote operations, remote cyber espionage operations, but in order to cover my tracks, I create damage in the targeted cyber infrastructure because I don't want the other side to know I've been inside and I have this information, then it would be a violation of the sovereignty of that state, not because it was espionage, but rather because you've caused physical effects on the territory of another state. Uh, and so it would be no different than dropping a bomb on another state that would violate sovereignty as well as be a use of force and so forth. So there is not so a statement, for, just so I know, uh, it, it, it is not, there's not a statement in here that says breaking into a computer and stealing all the data on some other country's um, territory, if the computer's on their territory, that, that that constitutes a violation of international law or an intrusion on the sovereignty of the country that houses the computer? Yeah, that's correct. We don't have such a rule. What we do have is a rule regarding sovereignty uh, that says sovereignty applies in cyberspace and there, more, almost more than any other place, and it's what Brian was talking about, there, the issue is when do you violate sovereignty? What sort of acts violate sovereignty? So, you know, uh, causing damage clearly violates sovereignty in our view. Uh, if you're exfiltrating data, there, you know, the experts began to, consensus began to break down. I personally don't believe the mere exfiltration of data 
is necessarily a violation of sovereignty. So again, you look at the nature of the operation, not the fact that it's espionage. Okay. Well, if, if, if exfiltration is uh, uh, a violation, then all the what's the point of espionage if you aren't exfiltrating the data? I, well, yeah, Mike Schmidt thinks it's not a violation. Okay. All right. Uh, Brian, uh, um, is that consistent with the State Department's view of uh, where international law is? I, I think that this one problem with this area and what customary international law, we're talking about customary international law, we're not talking about the treaty means here, um, but you derive customary international law from state practice and what states think they're legally uh, allowed or obligated to do. Um, and you don't have states talking about what they do at this spot. It's, it, it makes it very difficult for, uh, for third parties to derive what the rules of the roads are. It makes it very difficult for governments to understand what others think of this space. Um, my personal view is uh, along the lines of what Mike said, uh, and I think that is the government's view. I did have a interagency cleared uh, set of talks that I gave at, uh, at Berkeley late last year uh, that reflects uh, some of our deliberations on talent and other issues, including whether mere intelligence collection without any effects is a violation of international law. It's sort of hard to do that, though. But, you know, you, you look at uh, how cybercrime works, mm -hmm. and you DDoS the guys while you're to keep them busy while you steal the data. Uh, that's, that's an increasingly common uh, uh, tactic, and that means you are having maybe not a physical effect, but you're certainly preventing access to the, uh, uh, to the network uh, as part of the uh, effort to extract data. Well, let me, let me try this uh, jurisdictional sovereignty mm -hmm. question because I think it's very real. Uh, but I'll keep it hypothetical in case uh, Brian um, otherwise can't talk about it. Uh, suppose that a country like, uh, with a name that rhymes with Shmaran, uh, uh, does a DDoS attack on American banks. Uh, I, and uh, they do that by getting, uh, you know, uh, Internet-enabled vibrators all over the world to attack uh, uh, the banks. Uh, I, and uh, uh, there is uh, stopping that is actually surprisingly difficult uh, if you try to do it by going to the governments of all the countries that have these uh, Internet of Things devices that are attacking uh, uh, the banks and ask them to shut it down. That, that's an extraordinarily slow effort. Uh, and so the, the way to stop it is pretty much what the Brickerbot guy did, uh, which is to figure out who's attacking you and shut them down, maybe you clean them out and make them uh, uh, not susceptible to an attack in the future. Um, I get a strong sense from this that uh, the Talon Manual would say, and maybe the U.S. government would say, oh, running Brickerbot in order to prevent an attack on the United States that is designed to get us to cave in the uh, nuclear negotiations is a uh, violation of the sovereignty of every third country that... Uh, where these uh, internet-enabled vibrators are to be found. Is that, uh, is, is that the position of the U.S.? And, and Mike, is that the position of the Talon manual drafters? Well, I'll take the position of the Talon manual drafters first. I mean, this is a, it's a pretty complicated scenario. Um, the first question you have to ask yourself when you're asking about what a victim state can do is has the other state, in this case uh, the country that runs with Iran, um, has the other state itself violated international law? Is it continuing to violate international law? Because if that state has, then the, the extent of remedies available to you are pretty significant. They're called countermeasures in international law. And the reason it's, they're pretty significant is because the countermeasure is an action that would be unlawful, but for the fact that you're trying to get the other country to knock it off. So, Michael, and I, so, I, I, let me yeah. stop you there for a second, because yep. that countermeasures would allow me to do mean things to Iran. Uh, but exactly I, I just right. want to stop the attacks by start. And that well, means one of the ways you stop elsewhere. Yep. So uh, I would argue that one of the ways that you stop such an attack is inflict pain on the country that is behind the attacks. Okay, so you get that country to knock it off. With regard to the other states, that's uh, correctly a more complicated issue. That involves a legal principle known as due diligence. And the question there is the principle of due diligence, uh, that states, 
have a responsibility to ensure their territory is not used to the detriment of other states. And now, severe detriment, not minor issues. So you have to ask whether or not those states where the individual bots are located, are they in breach of their due diligence obligation? It's interesting you bring this up because we dealt with this in the manual. And here the group was split. The majority of the groups said you may not aggregate the effects from all the various countries in order to get a severe, uh, to get severe harm. So in the case of the majority, the majority would say you may not strike back into those countries if your operation back into those countries would violate their sovereignty. A minority said you can aggregate all the effects. If you have a bot, you look at all the countries, you figure out what the overall effect of the botnet of the DDoS operation is, and that gives you a severe effect. I would emphasize, though, that it all comes back to sovereignty. I understand there's a discussion going on in government about the notion of sovereignty in cyberspace, but it all comes back to sovereignty. Because you see, if your operation back into those countries against a uh, against the bots does not breach the sovereignty of the states where the individual bots are located, that's not a violation of international law, and it's perfectly lawful. But you're changing the, the uh, you're changing so, you are you changing know, we are you're changing the operation of computers on their territory in Thailand and uh, Sri Lanka uh, and everywhere else. Uh, or again, uh, this is. This is, Brian nailed it earlier on. This is why it's so very important that we begin to look at states and states begin to express what their legal views are on the matter. Because all the experts involved in the Tallinn Manual could agree on, the only thing they could agree on, was that it's a violation of sovereignty when there's physical harm to cyber infrastructure or persons, or where there's an interference with the functionality of the, the cyber infrastructure on a relatively permanent, in a permanent way, in a relatively permanent way. Well, so, Mike, so I, you're I, simply, let me, let me. So, so beyond that, that's where all the gray area is, and that's where we need to, to, to focus our efforts in identifying, okay, where is the line? Okay, I, I will editorialize briefly before turning this back over to, to Brian. Uh -huh. This is why I think this whole international law effort is nuts. Uh, we have taken an issue that ought to be easy and, and pretend that it's really hard. To, but the right answer here surely is to brickerbot uh, these uh, the tools that the uh, Iranians are using to attack us. That is not, I understand, where Talon came out. And frankly, I don't think it's where the U.S. came out. But let me ask Brian that. And talk about this as hypothetically as he needs. Just, uh, just pressing back on that just for a moment, Stuart. So, with the the uh, DDoS attacks were coming from the United States. Yes, our guys should be bricker botted too. Yes, I'm talking about that. If that caused damage to our computer systems beyond what the bricker bots themselves. Uh, you know, and maybe there's a, the, the, yes, of course, we do not want to end up causing damage that uh, uh, harms computers beyond the harm they've already suffered. But these are these are people who let their damn machines get taken over in the first place by somebody who's using them for DDoS. And they're not innocent parties entirely. Uh, and, uh, they may be. Uh, well, they're, they're innocent in the same sense that uh, uh, people who uh, um, leave their cars uh, with valuables in them unlocking the windows down in a bad neighborhood are innocent. Yeah, they... they, they um, may not deserve what's coming to them, but they are also potentially making it possible for people to become criminals who wouldn't otherwise become criminals. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, I, that doesn't feel completely innocent. But, you know, give me a break. BrickerBot is not uh, – BrickerBot is actually killing these, these computers. You can also uh, fix the computers and just cause them no longer to be part of the bot herd. Um, and uh, – um, there is no other alternative. We're not going to go demarching 90 countries to say we think you have four uh, uh, internet-enabled vibrators that are attacking us. Uh, uh, please go find them and turn them off. Uh, uh, that's just not what's going to happen. Uh, uh, and so the only effective tool to respond to this, which was a you know a pretty damaging, it had a damaging impact on the U.S. approach to the, in my view, mm -hmm. to the Iranian negotiations. Uh, and yet uh, we managed to turn it into a really hard issue, at least Tallinn did. I don't know, does the U.S. government have a slightly
slightly different view about what you can and can't do in those circumstances? Well, I think the, um, just continue on what I will answer your question, I yep. promise. Okay. Um, I wonder what you would know better than I, but our law enforcement officials might say about something like this. Would they say? They would say it violated U.S. law. But, but you know, so does cyber, so does cyber espionage. And we they do also it all say, the time. if you told us we could have done a better job shutting it down than you did just blowing up no, the computer. No, there's no way they could have gotten the Sri Lankans to cooperate in time. No, I'm talking about an attack on U.S. soil. Oh. A maybe we've never been very good at that. But they, you think we? They, 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 you're right. They might have gone to court to get authority. Now that Rule 41 has been changed, right. Right. Uh, to say we want the authority to set this to to meet our international obligations by doing this. Um, but that would have taken them a week or two, uh, and in the meantime, the attacks would have continued. And I can imagine, uh, in some circumstances, someone, some country would say, I'm not willing to wait. So I guess my, part of my point is one could see a world, or at least I could see a world, maybe you couldn't see a world, I could see a world, but that might be part of the analysis, the capabilities of the third country. Right, unable or unwilling, I think, is sort of the, the mantra. Right? In, in, in the law of armed conflict, area, exactly. So you, you could think about transporting that model into the non-war area, and right. if you're in the UK, well, we should go talk to you. If you're uh, yes. country X, then maybe that doesn't make sense. But what the framework is for thinking about that, I, I, I do think that it can be complicated, in part because we want to be sure that whatever rule we articulate and use something we're willing to have used against us. So we shouldn't articulate all these damn rules. We're crazy to do it. At the, when we're talking about something that is this new, to say, oh, yeah, we got a complete legal uh, a manual with 700 pages worth of rules for you before we actually know what works and what doesn't. That's, that's why I... I I, I, sorry, Mike, that's why I think this whole exercise is wrong-headed. Uh, 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 if, if we can't put it on a, in a pamphlet or maybe on two sides of a three-by-five card, uh, um, we probably shouldn't be writing it at all because uh, that's how much we know about what works and what doesn't work and what the consequences of all this uh, are. But I, I, I'm here with two experts flaunting uh, uh, my ignorance, I have to say. Okay. Well, I'm very nervous, Stuart, about views that, uh, you know, I want to do this. It makes sense in the circumstances, so the law must be consistent with my reasonable desire. That's just not the way any legal regime works, whether it's international law or domestic law. The alternative to setting forth the rules, and remember, we did not set forth the rules. What we did was identify fault lines in the law, uh, areas where the law fell short, areas where there was disagreement, areas where there, the interpretation of the year, law wasn't entirely clear. The alternative is to have what used to be called a Wild West. And clearly the international law community, or the international community rather, was uncomfortable with a cyber Wild West. I mean, you can see this in the efforts of the UN Group of Governmental Experts and, and many other efforts by states. So states have made this choice. It isn't that states have made the choice against the Wild West. Well, so that's the case. Come on, I think come they on, really Mike. They've, 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 they've sure. said what a great unilateral mechanism for controlling an otherwise uh, difficult to control U.S. technical capability. Yeah. Why don't we make them admit to legal restrictions, and then their lawyers will shut them down? Uh, I don't. I, I'm, I'm guessing there's not a lot of uh, legal analysis at the. Uh, uh, in, in the Kremlin about whether they can take down Macron or Hillary Clinton. Uh, uh, we, we're the people who worry about it, and, and Western Europe worries about it. Uh, uh, and so if you, can, if you can write strict rules for us and then ignore them for yourself, uh, life is good. Unless you want to uh, name and shame those countries. I imagine it was pretty useful. Brian would be able to speak to this. Um, more accurately, but I imagine it was pretty useful when the Russians were involved in the DNC hacks. It's pretty useful to label them lawmakers or lawbreakers. Oh, I really? mean, there is utility in having international law apply to other countries as well. Yeah, maybe. I, I'm, 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 a, I'm a skeptic. I, you know, uh, how long did the uh, uh, outcry over the siege of Aleppo and the human rights violations that occurred there uh, on the behalf of the Russians uh, resonate? A uh, week and a half? Uh, you know, I, I'm just and not sure that uh, naming and shaming over violations of international law 
Although in that case, of course, it was the allegations that there had been violations of international law, which was clear that justified the response ultimately. All right, Mike. Uh, Brian, I, uh, let me give you a last word on this uh, topic, uh, and I'm hoping you'll come back and uh, continue to represent uh, all that is good and right in the world against uh, my... Uh, I just hope that nothing I said here prevents me from getting an email address at step down the next <laughs> Yeah, we do, we do not have a confirmation process. <laughs> Okay, so Mike Schmidt, that was a great uh, full-throated and uh, informative uh, um, uh, defense of the Talon 2.0 manual, and uh, I do recommend it to people who care about these issues. It's, uh, it's definitely worth reading, and it tells you, you know, where things stand in 2017 in terms of the issues that worry uh, uh, international lawyers about uh, cyber operations. So Mike, uh, uh, thanks very much. Uh, thanks to Brian Egan for participating as well. Alan Cohen, Michael Vattis, Stephanie Roy, uh, it's a pleasure to have you all on the program. This has been episode 152 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, please do send us uh, suggestions for guest interviewees. We've gotten a number of them, and I'm in the process of inviting many of them, uh, at which point we'll start sending out uh, Stepto Cyberlaw podcast mugs to the people who suggested these folks. I'm learning about a whole bunch of people I never uh, realized were out there. Uh, send those suggestions to Cyberlaw Podcast at Stepto.com. Coming up, we're going to be joined by Tim Maurer, who's written a really uh, influential and thoughtful Carnegie uh, uh, paper on uh, the banks, international regulation, and cyber attacks. And um, contrary to uh, hype, I will actually uh, come close to endorsing the idea of uh, cyber norms involving attacks on banks, uh, namely because I think there's a, I see a way in which those norms could be enforced uh, as opposed to just uh, relying on naming and shaming. So he's going to come on, uh, uh, and uh, uh, we hope you'll join us for that and other episodes as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.